This is everything you want to know about non-clinical careers for physicians. At Third Evolution, I'm your host, Robert Pretty. I wrote an article some time ago called The Best Advice I Ever Gave. A couple of people asked me if I'd made a typo and did I mean to say the best advice I ever got. And no, I do mean to say the best advice I ever gave because this is advice that I've developed over several decades working with physicians and executives and collaborative advisory and other working relationships. The advice I give is based on work and rework from experiences others were kind enough to afford me and share with me. So here it is. These are three key principles I encourage you to keep in mind as you go down this pathway of transitioning from clinical to non-clinical work. Number one, career transition is a process. It's not an event. It is a process. Number two, you're the best expert in whatever endeavor you choose to pursue. And number three, never overestimate the knowledge of your audience. Let me elaborate. First, again, career change is a process. It's not an event. And I say that in this sense. Lightning strikes someplace on the earth about 25 times every second. Well, in six plus decades of being on this earth, I've yet to be struck. So don't count on filling out a job application online or attending some career fair type activity and walking out with the job of your dreams. Again, lightning does strike rather frequently, but don't count on it as a strategy. And like any process, it requires management. It requires flexibility. It's very, very similar to patient care. When you develop a treatment plan for a patient, you don't just walk away and expect everything to work. You check with that patient and make sure that that they're compliant and make certain that they're responding appropriately to medications or therapies, and you make adjustments. It's the same with career change. There is not a set and unchanging path that you're going to follow and be successful. You need to have a direction that you're moving and constantly monitor and measure that direction and track your milestones in order to ensure your success. Further, appreciate your transition in the context of your objectives. And again, relating this back to patient care, if someone arrives at your office with a migraine headache, you can provide them with some medication, and the next day they can expect to feel fine. If a person arrives in your office who had a hip replaced just a few days earlier, well, they're not going to be running marathons in the next day or two. Every diagnosis, every procedure has its own timeline for recovery or cure. The same is true for your career transition. If your objective is to go into a career field where opportunities are plentiful, and I would generally equate that also with income levels are not particularly high, then your transition may be fairly quick. And quick in career transition is probably... Uh, three to nine or ten months. However, if you're going into a career field where, let's just say, the the barriers are a bit higher, the expectations for experience and background may be more precise, or even a career transition where the barriers are unknown, 
the transition is predicated on your very discreet knowledge and experience, and you're looking to solve some very special problems or address some special opportunities that an industry or organization may have. That can take a considerable amount of time. When I'm working with a new client, I generally advise them to expect a normal transition timeline to be within 9 to 14 months. Certainly, those who are going down a a more entrepreneurial path may find that it takes a bit longer, simply because uh, becoming an entrepreneur is not a a binary activity. Uh, It is a graduated or developing, growing type of activity. So uh, initial success may not be followed with uh, ongoing linear success. So the actual development timeline is going to stretch out over a longer period. If, on the other hand, you're transitioning to a job, then, yes, that is a binary activity. You are, you're either employed or you're not employed. But you should still be expecting that 9- to 14-month timeline as a reasonable transition period. The other consideration to have in a non-clinical career transition is unlike the process that you followed in order to become a physician or to, to become a practicing physician, there are choices to be made and there are changes that can also be made. In other words, once you entered a residency, it was pretty difficult to drop out of that residency and find a different one, particularly in a different specialty. Whereas, as you go through this career transition process, you may very well reach a point in, I'll say, conversation and networking where you say to yourself, this may not be exactly the right pathway. I need to make some adjustments. And in non-clinical career transition, it's perfectly fine to stop, redirect yourself a bit, and restart. As a matter of fact, and I say this to a lot of clients, even beginning down this pathway, you're not making a commitment to change. You may well commence a transition process only to make the ultimate decision that you don't want to transition. And that's perfectly all right as well. The objective of any type of career development process is to make the best possible decision. And occasionally, that decision may be that you're not going to change anything. So approach this with an open mind and with a high level of flexibility, and don't be afraid of ambiguity. You're not required to make highly definitive decisions, literally, until you're in a position to either accept or reject a job offer or to actually accept an initial client. And in closing out this section on process, I want to stress two final points. Number one is that after making your transition, you should keep your licenses, uh, your board certification, your memberships, everything that was associated with your medical practice, keep it active. Keep it active for this reason. Within a two-year timeline, most physicians find it acceptable to return to a medical practice setting. So if you would make a decision during that initial two years being away from practice that you wanted to go back, you more than likely could as long as you maintain the appropriate relationships, licensure, and the like. The second point is this. When you became a physician, you probably expected to do it for the rest of your life. 
when you make this transition away from clinical practice, at least many physicians I speak with have the same expectation. If I'm going to make a change, then I guess I'm making a lifelong change. The reality is you probably are not, and certainly you don't have to. Once you make a career transition, you're going to find that as your skills develop and as you accomplish new and different things, you're going to become a target of the job market. And it's very likely that you'll be recruited into other positions or at least offered the opportunity to be recruited into other positions. This goes back to being flexible, keeping an open mind, being comfortable with ambiguity. Look at this career transition simply as a next step, not as a last step. That second critical factor, in terms of the best advice, you're the best expert in whatever endeavor you choose to pursue. I stress this to clients because physicians have a tendency to downplay their knowledge. Physicians have a tendency to be uh, somewhat circumspect when it comes to asserting knowledge in areas outside of their medical specialization. And I do appreciate that being able to trust yourself and trust your expertise in a career field that may be very new to you can seem quite challenging. I know from experience, many, many of my clients are asking for help finding some job where they will be mentored for a period of time while they gain the confidence they believe they need to be able to perform well. Well, mentoring is called a residency, and they don't offer that many residencies in business. So frankly, you're pretty much on your own. Now, it may sound rather harsh, but in reality, you're best on your own and not trying to act in someone else's shadow. The reality is this. You really do know more than you'll give yourself credit for. And let's face it, whether you're in an exam room or a surgical theater, you have a pretty good set of instincts and judgment. Physicians usually carry those same attitudes toward risk or taking chances they have in practice into the business world. As a friend of mine said to me once when I asked about his new non-clinical job, he said, hey, Bob, it's great. No matter what I do, nobody's going to die. So just as you do in surgery, trust yourself and your own instincts more than you trust anyone else. But again, just as you do today. Be aware of your surroundings and look for the opportunity to learn something from everyone you meet. Just don't sell yourself short. You might consider taking that leap of faith in this way. When you sit down with a new patient and you say, why are you here? You're effectively saying, I don't know what's wrong with you. But you begin to ask questions that will tell you what's wrong with them. And it's through that process of questions and, I'll say, more and more questions, more probing, more granular questions for more clear responses that you're able to render a diagnosis. In the non-clinical world, it's much the same. You're not expected to know every answer for every question every time. There's nothing wrong with asking people around you how they would do something, how they see something, ask for their input, their comments, their observations. And by following that same process you follow with a patient, and by that what I mean is following that process of collecting, amassing a body of information and data, you start to sort through it and discern what is important and what isn't. And it's the same 
in your non-clinical job. Take that leap of faith that by talking with people and asking questions and simply using your own knowledge and your own intuitive skills, you will be able to come to probably a workable conclusion. The flip side of that is, again, as my old friend said to me, well, even if I make a mistake, nobody's going to die. And if you're still having trouble learning to trust yourself and your own instincts in a new environment, let me offer this little tip. It's something that I have advised many clients, and they come back to me and say how amazed they are at how easily it worked. Simply start your conversation with someone by saying, I want to treat you or I want to treat this situation the same way I would treat a patient. That person will immediately believe that the situation has been elevated to a different level of of concern, of focus, and of analysis. And then you can explain to them that your objective is to look at subjective information, objective information, and then build an assessment that will result in a plan of action. Trust me, they will be very impressed by that perspective and they will want to participate. They will want to help you, whether it is in developing the information or building the assessment or looking at the plan. But you're inviting them to join you in your world, you might say, and you'll find that it's very rewarding for them and it's going to position you as having a very unique level of expertise in your ability to analyze problems and take actions. So one final comment about your expertise and your ability to to look at it realistically and appreciate the value of it. You're coming from a perspective, you're coming from a career path where your expertise is, is exhibited principally in your performance of tasks. You're probably moving into a career path where your expertise is going to be determined by your opinions, by your ideas, by how you approach solving problems, not just the performance of a task. And tasks inherently require a much greater, higher level of precision. Opinions, not so much. The last principle is this, never overestimate the knowledge of your audience. Let me say that again. Never overestimate the knowledge of your audience. A business associate heard me make that statement one time and pulled me aside later and said that he thought I was being rather condescending, being critical perhaps to the knowledge level of the people we were working with. I assured him that in no way was I questioning anyone's knowledge or intellect, but what I was questioning was their understanding of the exact perspective that I was hoping to present. And whether you're in a business meeting or a formal presentation, great care needs to be taken to ensure that you are presenting information and material in a context that those you're presenting to are able to relate to and able to follow the contextual process that you are laying out. Otherwise, you're ultimately going to be asking other people to make decisions or reach conclusions based on inaccurate or incomplete information and data. That's the purpose of being granular in your presentation. It's the purpose of 
presenting a level of detail that ensures you that everyone is on the same page. And that's really what we're talking about. It's not necessarily a function of knowledge as much a function of context and managing the context of your presentation so that everyone else resides within that same context. Let me explain why I say this and allow me to put it in a context for you so that you can understand the underpinnings of the assertions that I make. Most physicians are knowledge experts. Knowledge experts is a very distinct management style that numerous researchers have characterized as those individuals who lead from the front, relying on personal knowledge, expertise, and strength of character. They lead by example. I further characterize knowledge experts or knowledge specialists, as some term them, as individuals absent any true management process as might be defined in an MBA setting. That's not a criticism, but it's a 30-plus year observation of physicians who simply do. They don't direct, they don't ask, they do. When I ask physicians about their approach to managing staff, I'm usually told, well, we don't. In other words, they don't really like telling people what to do. They simply expect staff to know their jobs and fill in appropriately. Having to actually direct work activities, define job descriptions and responsibilities, and address staff performance issues is not attractive to the vast majority of physicians with whom I work. However, a side effect of being a knowledge expert or a knowledge specialist is very often simply assuming other people share your perspective, your capabilities, and your intuitive level of knowledge. That is, just as when you summon staff in your office with very few words and they perform properly. Physicians too often believe they can communicate an idea or a concept or their objectives with enormous brevity and still get their points across. After all, everyone you're working with is very smart, right? Yes, they are smart, but smart doesn't translate into knowing what you know or knowing the context of what you're saying. I've seen more business presentations fail from a lack of detail than from an overabundance of detail. It's easy to say, I'll skip this slide because I know from our conversation or I know from your reactions, you already understand this information. Far easier to say that than it is to say, it's obvious you have no clue what I'm talking about, so I'll restart my presentation at a much more remedial level. That's not going to fly. How then do you accomplish your goal of being complete without being menial? of bringing everyone onto the same page without seeming demagogic, and being detailed without being demeaning or condescending. First, you know your audience. In a business meeting, you should know the people around the table. However, if there are people during introductions you realize you don't, then follow my earlier advice about treating the situation like you are treating a new patient. Think subjective, objective, assessment, and plan. In other words, do what you do best. Analyze people by getting them to talk. You should ask their objectives, their expected contribution perhaps, their relevant experiences that support their participation. In doing this, you can subjectively define their personality. That is, how best to communicate with them to gain their support. 
objectively, you want to know their objectives, both in terms of contribution and what they hope to gain. With this information, you can assess what to say and how to yield your most favorable result and then incorporate them into your communications or presentation plan. That's how you effectively manage a business meeting. Oh, one other tip I want to provide to you. In that business meeting, most of the time, they're going to begin with someone, whether it's you or, or another person in, in the room, who says, why don't we go around the table and introduce ourselves? What I've experienced in these meetings or these types of meetings are everything from someone who literally provides their life story beginning with where they went to high school who's someone who simply says, I'm Bob. This is where your stump speech becomes really a vital tool. If you begin with who you are, a bit of your background, why you're in the meeting, what you expect to contribute, and what you expect to gain, you will go a long way, not just in creating a very strong first impression, but also in making certain that the meeting does actually flow in a manner that satisfies both what you want to contribute and what you want to gain. And after all, that's your objective. Now let's move to the conference presentation, the seminar presentation, in a formal or very large group environment. I always arrive in that type of a setting in the presentation hall 15 or 20 minutes early. What I do is this. I walk around and I introduce myself as the next speaker. Well, naturally, I'm probably wearing a badge that says speaker, so I'm somewhat recognized. Regardless, I introduce myself and I ask the people I talk to, why they're there, what are they interested in, what do they hope to gain. Within two to three minutes, my objective is to understand what they know and what they want to know. And I may ask what one question do they want to have answered today, or what one slice of information do they want to walk out of this presentation with. During my 15 to 20 minutes, my objective is to speak with about three to five people and then weigh the sum of their comments to help define the level of my presentation. In other words, I want to know the knowledge level of my audience. And yes, I'm predicating that uh, impression on a fairly small sample, but it's better than no sample at all. Plus, by learning the type of organization they represent, their job title, I can get a sense of how representative I would expect them to be of the larger crowd. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret as well. There's a second ulterior motive I have for meeting people before my presentation. I'm a pretty shy, introverted person. My second objective in these meetings is to assure myself that I've developed a certain connection with at least three to five people in the audience. And that if I answer their questions, which I most certainly will, I will have likely answered the questions of quite a few people in attendance. During my presentation, and particularly when I reference a question or an objective stated to me, I will endeavor to look at that person. In that way, I'm no longer speaking to 500 people. I'm speaking to five. And those five people will smile at me and offer some affirming nods and very likely some applause. I know from my behavioral research with physicians that most physicians carry some level of introvert tendencies. So you may find this tip helpful as well. But back on point, 
whether with an audience large or small, known or unknown, understanding their objectives and their perspectives will allow you to shape your presentation, your discussion, to represent the right levels of detail and content to keep everyone on the same page and to mitigate or even eliminate dissent once whatever you're proposing or presenting moves from discussion to action. You're used to dealing with experts just like yourself. In the non-clinical world, expertise, as you would define and apply it, is very different, much more nuanced, and you always want to be absolutely certain your audience, whether one person or 1,000, is on the same page as you. So there you have it. Three pieces of really critical advice that I will encourage you to you know, store in the, in the back of your mind and, and pull them out as appropriate. I can't tell you how many times I have said these three things to clients, to people who simply call me for 20 minutes worth of advice, to stress that career change is a process. Expect to commit time and effort and resources in order to effect it successfully. Don't underestimate your own knowledge. You are the best expert in whatever endeavor you choose to pursue. Give yourself the credit you deserve. And then never, never overestimate the knowledge of your audience. And again, that's not saying people aren't smart. It's saying they don't necessarily know what you know or what you want them to know and in the context you want them to know it. You're responsible for what you communicate and the context in which it's received. I hope you find this information helpful, and I hope you use it. And as always, I welcome your questions and your comments. You can call or text me at 720-339-3585. So until next time, this is Robert Pretty for Third Evolution. Thanks for listening.